Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. And we want to welcome you back. Happy Friday to you, Jim. How you doing today? You know, uh, it, it got a little bit chilly. I, I feel, okay, first of all, I feel bad. Every time you ask me how you're doing, the instant I, that you ask me that, I, I, I seem to have this idea where I want to launch into, like, small talk about the weather. But, you know, it's just a function of living in the Midwest where shit is completely volatile and predictable all the time. The sort of prevailing wisdom always being, don't like the weather in Region X, then just wait five minutes, it'll change. But last week, it was in the 80s, and today it's, like, uh, in the 50s, and we actually had a frost advisory this morning. So that's this ridiculous. is just no reason to the meteorological yeah. profile of this region of the country at all. No, it's just random chaos. And Other than that, I mean, things are great. Things yeah. are, although today, I was, I was a little bit salty, because today there was this event that was going on near me uh, called Bacon Fest. And obviously anything called Bacon Fest is just going to be like a bacchanalian orgy of pork, salt, and nitrates, and it's something you have to go to. Absolutely. Uh, and it was at a public park about a town over from me, like a real resort town that's, that a lot of people go to in the summertime. And I really wanted to go, but apparently I went to go look at the event page to find out what time it started a day or two ago, and it said Bacon Fest is sold out. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about sold out? It's a public park. It's like saying the county fair is sold out. They only brought enough bacon. Public park. They only brought enough yeah. bacon for like however many people, man. Apparently, they only you know it's an exclusive event. They only have enough bacon for X amount of people. The last time I went to a bacon themed event was a fundraiser for the Church of Bacon, which is uh, kind of an atheist resource <laughs> that uh, seeks to uh, to say, hey, we we worship bacon because bacon is real. And they were trying to raise enough money to take over um, Penn Jillette's house in Vegas. The Slammer. The Slammer. Oh. The Slammer. I got to go to the Slammer. And there was an, uh, all the bacon you could possibly eat, and they had uh, turkey bacon for the Jewish folks, and they had vegan bacon for those that didn't eat meat, and they had bacon bacon for the rest of us heathen carnivores. And it was kind of a magical mm-hmm. event, because I got to meet Penn Jillette, I got to meet um, Ruckus from uh, Bad Ink, uh, it was a really, and, and, and Penn's uh, jazz band played, he plays upright bass, and it was a really, really fun time. So my, my track record for attending bacon-themed events is, uh, is one to know, but um, you know, there, there will be other times where we can eat bacon. It's true, and and of course we have like down here we have things like that all the time. But we got a garlic fest that's in like uh, Centralia, which is like about an hour, half hour, forty five minutes south of here. Good and, for your circulation, uh, but don't kiss your wife after that unless she went to the same thing. You ought to bring her with her. Yeah, they have bacon, or they have like uh, oh, what is it? Uh, they have garlic French fries and garlic this, that, and the other thing, and like garlic ice cream. We tried garlic ice cream last time we were there. That was, sounds like it's kind of a mixed bag. I, you know, I like ice cream, I like garlic, weird. but together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was weird. But uh, I, I enjoy going to food festivals and things like that, so Bacon Fest seems like it would be literally right up my alley. Yeah, I went to a food truck festival in Vegas right around the same time uh, where there were about 60 or 70 food trucks that just circled up in the uh, parking lot of, of Caesars Palace, and that was, uh, was quite a fun time. I think I gained about eight pounds that day just eating uh, Thai fusion tacos and and uh, deep-fried Oreos and every goddamn thing under the sun that tastes good, but it'll kill you early. Absolutely. Hey, I'm kind of looking forward to that uh, summer coming around and the vaccines being more readily available. So yeah, maybe we, we can get, a get back this year. to some of that shit and, and actually get out and do some fun shit like that. Yeah, Barbecues I have actually made and... it a point to resume my live music schedule. Not performing yet, that's still kind of in the works, but to attend live shows because, I mean, 2020 was the first year since probably... Uh, junior high that I haven't been to at least five or six concerts a year. Uh, so I've already got, I think, from 
early September through the end of the year. In the last two weeks, I've picked up tickets to four different shows or festivals. So I'm looking forward to that picking up again late summer, early fall. Can't wait. I got a lot of local musicians up here that I'm looking forward to seeing in person again and, and, and networking with again and kind of getting back in to the swing of things. A return so. to normalcy is on the horizon, ladies and gentlemen. So yeah, we finally got to go and do uh, our first post-COVID gig, my band and I, and uh, it was a couple of weekends ago, and it was really nice. <coughs> another sentiment! <coughs> Let's plug Kevin's band, because he's too modest to do it by name. Kevin's band is another sentiment. You can find them online, you can find them on Bandcamp, oh you can God. find them on Spotify. Dig them up, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's not like I haven't had them on the podcast a few times as well. But yeah, okay, fine. Look, us, look us up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash another sentiment. So, um, but... Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to be on stage in front of people again, and 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 I mean we were still kind of social distance, and it was still kind of an outdoor thing, and but that was kind of neat and just something I missed doing entirely. So hopefully this yeah, year we you. can get back into the swing and really just kind of reclaim what we lost—a whole year's worth of time that we lost, but. Yeah, somebody owes us all a year. I don't know if we'll actually be able to claim that back, like, you know, lost taxes or something when you file at the end of the year. But, you know, at some point, somebody owes us a year. We all got at least a year taken away from us. Maybe we can all just deduct a year from our age. So it's like, I'm going to be, be, nice? be 44 this year, but maybe you'll just call 43 a wash and just start over. Yeah. You know. I'm, I'm absolutely for that. Where can we? Let's, let's start a petition and send it to whoever's in charge of that shit. Change.org. Let's go. Done. <laughs> We'll sign it up. Just it We'll have as much traction as those people who are trying to end daylight savings time. So, Which actually makes just as much sense when you really break it down. That's true. But, but ideally, we'll be able to reclaim some of our lost year and, and, and at least have some fun this year. Now, I know for me, it's been a long uh, year of basically just sitting in my house and watching Netflix and... Uh, all the various streaming services, Disney Plus and Hulu and all that. And But one of the other things that keeps me going, in, and I know that you're kind of in a similar vein, is is video games. And, and without my video games, I probably would lose my goddamn mind. Look at you go, Captain Segway. But yeah, I'm totally in the same boat with you. If not for... And, and at this point, like almost, I kind of have to acknowledge that that we're very lucky in that because you and I both managed to secure next-gen consoles. So... Uh, even though we're sort of in that overlap period where we're kind of getting some of the same games that the previous generation is getting, they just play so much better on the consoles that we have, which is kind of a very privileged and incredibly um, <laughs> shitty thing to admit. But it's it's just it's really true. I was talking about this with uh, uh, my friend and friend of the podcast listener uh, Justin the other day, because he was justifiably he was sending me a uh, a message on Facebook saying this is absolute bullshit because he's looking for. Uh, a Series X, and the uh, all the articles are still saying, um, you know, we need to, uh, to to still be on our toes in terms of of having those notifications about inventory drops and and constantly looking at all of the, the the big retailers and trying to see if we can you know swoop in at the last second and grab one of those few precious consoles they do manage to crap out. So um, it's it's been kind of a rough year for that too. But you know that's all stuff we'll get into as well. Right, and 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 the idea behind it is. I mean, if you look at the news anymore, that's all you really see is you see the shortages still taking place a year later, uh, which is absolutely ludicrous. Well, I guess it it's on, it's only been like six months, but they're saying that it won't be alleviated for another six months to a year. Uh, yeah, originally Sony and Microsoft both said that because of the semiconductor shortage, we should expect to have limited console availability through possibly April at the latest. Well, you know, here we are well into May. 
and uh, the, the, the shortages persist. So they're going to have to come up with a different excuse. It can't possibly be that semiconductor shortage anymore. There has to be another reason because, I mean, if you think about it, Microsoft and Sony are two of the most powerful, wealthy corporations on the planet. Right. If these guys don't have the resources to throw behind the consoles to get those things cranked out so they can sell them, then who the fuck would? Well, and, and um, the odd thing is, is I think it's just another and a long list of excuses for Sony and Microsoft, respectively, uh, because... I mean, I know for a fact that there are semiconductor shortages still. I know there's still a shortage of these components because, uh, as I've talked about on the program, we've interviewed uh, the uh, co-founder of uh, New Wave Toys for his Replicates Cabinets and uh, Shiloh Prychek, and, and he was an amazing person to talk to. And and back in the day, uh, before we even had that podcast, I had pre-ordered 1942-1943. I had pre-ordered through their Kickstarter these... Uh, uh, replica boom boxes that they're making these miniaturized boom boxes and those yeah. have been in the pipeline for well over a year now but the fact of the matter is is their production got halted because they just don't have the components right now and so we're in a yeah. holding pattern for those 1942-1943 uh, we're in a holding pattern for the other radios and everything else and it's just it's a definite issue that is going to keep cropping up and, and, and rearing its ugly head and there's just Although I did get brought up short the other day because it's always kind of been my contention that Microsoft and Sony in particular, and to a certain extent even Nintendo, because all they do is games, but they own that niche for a certain period of, of the consumer base. Uh, but these are very, very wealthy companies with great resources and, and incredible amounts of, of pull in the industry. Um, but early on in, in previous episodes of the podcast, I have made the point that, well, it really doesn't benefit Sony or Microsoft to not get those consoles out because obviously they're making money on them. And I think we talked about this one time when, when we were both sitting in a queue waiting for a PS5 on the, uh, the Sony Direct uh, store when they, when they were still doing, I think they're still doing the lottery system once in a while. But we were both waiting for our particular number to come up in the, in the, the console queue. And we were talking about how, or I was saying, it, it doesn't make any sense for PlayStation to be still pushing any false scarcity sort of idea at this point because it doesn't behoove them at all. It makes them no money to not sell consoles. However, I did just read an article on CNET that just came out uh, at the time of this taping uh, yesterday, um, and they said Microsoft has always, always, since the initial console, sold consoles at a loss. Executives confirmed during the Epic Games, Apple tri Epic Games versus Apple trial on Wednesday... As previously reported by Business Insider, an Epic lawyer asked Microsoft's vice president of Xbox business development, Lori Wright, about what profit margins the company has on its, has on its sales of console units. She said, we don't. We sell the consoles at a loss, she said, before confirming that Microsoft has never earned a profit on console sales. Microsoft has been making games consoles since the original Xbox in 2001 and it released the Xbox Series X and S last November. So they're counting on Microsoft has been dropping a lot of money, as you and I have talked about before, not just on their uh, Xbox Live and Xbox um, Game Pass platforms, mm -hmm. um, but also in buying up developers. They bought up Ninja Theory, they bought up Double Fine, they bought up all these all these developers to compete with, with Sony because the, the yeah Bethesda uh, yeah. because the the uh, prevalent um, attitude has been the prevailing theory has been in years past that that Sony has always kind of outsold Microsoft by either slim or wide margins because they have a much more robust first party development program and to a certain extent that has been true and that's why I think Microsoft started buying up every developer in, in existence that wasn't nailed down. But apparently, and I didn't realize this until, like I said, I read the CNET article that I can't say anything for Sony because they haven't admitted this yet, but Microsoft at least, 
kind of has always had their consoles be a loss leader uh, in order to sort of push their their software platforms. Right. And I guess that kind of makes sense in a way because um, well, the consoles themselves, they're, at the times they come out at least, they're, they're at least pretty advanced for what they are. They are essentially just dedicated gaming PCs after all. Right. And that kind of ties in with another article I read not long ago where I read that Microsoft, the title of the article was kind of provocative, and it said, Microsoft doesn't care if you buy a Series X or not. And the general thrust of the article, and I want to say it was on Tom's Guide or it might have been on IGN, I'm not really sure, I don't have it in front of me, but because Microsoft is kind of transitioning to a service rather than an actual hardware-based platform, they really genuinely don't care. The games that are coming out, at least right now, this early in the console generation, will in theory at least play on both xbox one and xbox series x and a lot of their games especially like the games with gold and the game pass games reach as far back as the original xbox to the 360 right. so microsoft because they're they're transitioning more to a platform-based service they really don't care they they're, they're making money either way as long as you subscribe to game pass or xbox live which mine renewal is coming up 60 bucks a year is still a great deal right. and i think next month uh so microsoft uh because they are more of a delivery system now Xbox, excuse me, Microsoft is not. But Xbox is more of a delivery system than they are an actual console business model. It, it really doesn't make any sense to, to, to sink that much money into producing more consoles because that's not where they're making their money right now. Evidently, they, they lose money on every console they sell, so I suppose it really doesn't behoove them in any way, shape, or form to step up console production because that's not where they're making their money. But at the same time, and if you think about it like this, now, Nintendo has always been very uh, uh, blatant with their short cells and their yes. uh, manufactured scarcity. Uh, I they remember do it, six months for a Wii. Well, exactly. With the release of the Wii and not so much the Wii U, but uh, uh, with things like the uh, uh, the Switch when it first comes out and then when the Switch Lite came out, there was obviously a general shortage of those. Or mm -hmm. if you look at the uh, classic console systems, when the NES Classic came out, uh, those were extraordinarily hard to find. Um, and, and to a certain degree, are still hard to find. Um, but a lot of these things drive to the secondary market, uh, which, of course, yeah. doesn't benefit Nintendo one iota other than to get people hungry for their product. Now, I don't think that it's... Uh, I think maybe they started out uh, with a, a kind of a manufactured scarcity. I think PlayStation and, and, and Microsoft wanted to kind of open up the door to this and, and make people hungry for it and make people... Uh, uh, fight for it try to prove their loyalty in a way um yeah. but i think covid and everything else after that kind of spiked the industry at that point which took it from being a, a clever marketing strategy to build buzz and turned it into this uh frustrating uh, uh hunger games-esque snipe hunt where you can't get what you're looking to get yeah, the one-two punch of not only uh, console scarcity because of semiconductor shortages and everybody's at home streaming and playing video games means that almost, like you said, six, seven months after the release of these bloody consoles, they're still at an absolute premium and high demand and impossible to find. By now, all indications were that we should have just been able to, any Tom, Dick, or Dickless could stroll in off the street to a Best Buy, a Target, or a Walmart and walk out with a console in their hot little hands. But it's May, and they still can't do that. Right, and and I don't see that changing anytime in the foreseeable future. In fact, Sony's no. come out on record and said that uh, they are probably going to do a redesign of the PlayStation Five for next year. Absolutely, uh, available sometime mid next year, right around this time next year, uh, where they kind of work around 
the parts that they're short and, and find a way to make it work in a different fashion and a different way with parts more readily available so they can get more consoles manufactured and get more consoles into consumers hands but at this point uh it, it feels almost like a little too late you know what i mean it's it's yeah, it's it really does i mean like you say we're lucky to have them that's some first world <clears throat> problem shit when we're talking about it but for uh, sure the, the fact of the matter is is uh, how much support are third-party developers going to give to a system that doesn't have a wide array of uh, availability? Um, right. At this point, developers are having to, to make games and kind of uh, keep a foot in both last generation and mm-hmm. current generation exactly. in order to be able to move games at all. Because if you're making a PS5 or an Xbox Series X exclusive, of which I don't believe there are any at this point, there's some in the pipe, some, but all the games like, are the coming way, out yeah. now. Yeah, they, they have to be playable on both consoles because there just isn't an, a large enough installed user base on either of the current-gen consoles for anybody to be able to even cover production costs, much less make any money if you're just making a game for that console and, and not the one that came before. But then you run into problems like I was saying to uh, Justin when we were talking about this earlier when he was legitimately grousing about the fact that he can't get his hands on a Series X. I have a Series X and a PlayStation... Excuse me. Yep, a Series X and a PlayStation 5. But I also have an Xbox One. And then the great shuffle of, uh, of consoles when I was kind of trying to free up some HDMI ports in the back of my TV, I had to disconnect most of my older legacy consoles, I guess, and, and kind of just so I had enough room for the Switch, PS5, and Series X. And so I took the Xbox One and I put it on a different TV in the living room so that in case I wanted to uh, pick up my cloud save of like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I could just cart the disc from one room to the next. And in theory, I could play on, on both consoles and, and still have my cloud save be able to pick up on the other one when I was in a different room. Well, that worked in theory because uh, even though the game was developed for Xbox One and is still listed on the outside of the box and on the website and all the other marketing collateral as being enhanced for Series X, um, frankly, that game plays like shit on the Xbox One, which is a terrible <laughs> thing to say, but it's true. And it's not, as, it's not as bad as the great Cyberpunk 2077 debacle where the game had a lower frame rate than 80s anime and was completely unplayable if you played it on a current generation console for which it was theoretically developed. But it was bad enough that I took the the disc out at one point and I brought it over to the Xbox One. And again, this is privileged and elitist as fuck to say, (laughs) but I dropped into that console and the textures were at both, uh, at the same time, grainy and muddy. Uh, The frame rate was slightly less than half. And I think I've seen benchmark tests where they've done this. It runs at about 59 to 60 frames a second on the Xbox Series X, but it tops out at about 29 and a half and can be as shitty as 24 frames a second, which again is an incredible frame rates. But still, when you've played it on the console where it's butter smooth and just like snot on a glass doorknob, and then you take it to the other one and it just looks choppy as fuck and you can't see what's 10 feet in front of you, it really becomes an incredibly difficult thing to go back to. So I feel really badly that there are people who are not able to get their hands on these consoles because even the games that are kind of a Venn diagram game that theoretically work on, on both generations, they just play so much better on the current ones. It's almost night and day. Yeah. And, and again, like we said, it's probably not going to get any better anytime soon. The issue being is no. the fact that, I mean, they're just not producing enough. Uh, they have marketed it as being the... Highest selling, highest grossing console release of all times, which is not surprising, uh, given that, well, I mean, how many have ended up in the hands of these bots that bought them at, at 
regular price. I mean, but everyone is selling, and therein right. lies the difference. I mean, in mm-hmm. years past, you could walk in at this point in the console generation release, and there'd be 12, 13 of them sitting on a shelf at a big box retailer. And now you go in there, and there's literally still an empty spot on the shelf where there's a sign saying, We will not, and we do not, and will not have any inventory of these game consoles in. You got to go online for them. And you go online, and the bots snap still, six, seven months later, the bots still snap up every console within about 10 seconds. Yeah. And, and, and I, I feel like it's going to become kind of Wild West now. It's like, I, I, whereas Mew yeah. and I had this real <clears throat> reticence to pay these bots uh, the extra money to get these consoles. And I didn't. And I didn't either. I mean, I, thankfully. We got lucky, both of us. My but, Series X was my buddy Smo, who had an extra. Yeah. Uh, and he's a listener. Hey, what's up, buddy? And then uh, the, the, the PlayStation 5 happened to be when I was having some insomnia. And I was awake at about 5.30 in the morning. And I had my phone in my hand when I got a notification from one of the Twitter accounts that follow these things that Target was going to have inventory that day. So I quick zipped over to the Target site. And after about 30 minutes of trying, finally managed to penetrate their security and snag a console from about three towns over that I was able to go and pick up at 8 o'clock in the morning. But these are in- incredibly extenuating circumstances. It's incredibly lucky strikes that both of us fell into to get ours. And so a lot of people out there are still kind of waiting for that lightning. And I don't think it's going to hit. And I, and I think no. we're going to be stuck until like at least next Christmas or this Christmas or beyond. And I think the idea is now I, I truly see uh, the market for these scalpers opening up. I think they're going to make more money. I think they're going to actually start selling the consoles they're sitting on because people are going to get more and more uh, anxious to have this FOMO of not being able to play these new generation consoles is going to get the better of them. And I got to tell you, if I was sitting in their position at this point too uh, with uh, that $500 burning a hole in my pocket going, I really want to play, you know, at that point, what's 200 extra bucks other than a game or two? I would be rethinking my position on not ponying up for scalpers, not rewarding that bad behavior if I was in the same boat too, because we're very quickly edging into this sort of release window where the games that are going to be coming out are not necessarily games that don't play quite as well in the previous generation of consoles, but we'll still play on them if you're willing to be patient and wait. And we're starting to edge into the space where there's going to be games coming out that you need to have that next generation platform to play them on. Right. And they're just not, you know, developers are only going to be able to delay their release windows so far. We're kind of seeing that with movie studios in terms of the pandemic. They, they sat on these finished movies in the can for months on end, hoping that maybe theaters would open back up again. And then we're seeing like Disney and Marvel saying, fuck it, we can't wait on these any longer. And they're just dumping them onto streaming. And it's become kind of an issue. Like I remember reading an article also where there were a lot of Pixar employees that were pretty pissed off because Disney, uh, you know, Pixar is a subsidiary of Disney, but they are in their, they, before they got bought by Disney, they in their own right were a fantastic studio and still are a fantastic studio that operates as a going concern under the Disney umbrella. But Pixar has kind of been treated like a, a little bit of a uh, redheaded stepchild underneath Disney when they're, when they're on streaming now. The, the Pixar folks are pissed off because when Disney releases a Disney movie onto streaming, whether it's the Mulan live-action film, whether it's Raya and the Last Dragon, which came out in the last couple months, they release those on early-release premium, and you got to pay an extra 20 or 30 bucks to watch them even on streaming. But Whereas Soul Pixar, didn't get the same treatment. And neither is Luca, the new movie that's coming out, I think, next month, the new Pixar film, which hmm. looks fantastic. I saw the trailer. It looks amazing. But Soul and Luca both are just getting dumped onto the regular streaming service without any extra premium. So the Pixar folks are starting to feel a little slighted. They're like, hey, look, man, we win all the Oscars. We're kind of the stars of your stable. We did great before you came along. And even though you bought us and you own us now and kind of control our distribution network and schedule, 
you're still kind of treating our, our, our movies like second-class citizens within your family, and you're dumping them onto streaming without any extra money. And that's good for consumers because you can see these, these first-release movies. And it's, it's going to be happening with Black Widow on Disney Plus also, uh, I think in June or July. July. <clears throat> um, July, the next big, uh, the first uh, or second, I think, um, film in, in the next phase of Marvel films is going to be stream. Well, it's going to be actually released in both streaming and theaters. But let's be honest, most of us are going to watch it on streaming, whether or not there's a uh, an extra a buff for, for having to pay extra for the uh, the Black Widow movie. I'll probably pay it because you know how Marvel movies go. If you don't watch them right away, you got to duck spoilers for a couple of days, yep. and I'm not interested. So I'll probably do it. But there's there's sort of these emerging pissing contests that are sort of coming out. Um, so I think we'll start to see that scenario sort of play out with developers. They've had these games in development sometimes for years on end, and they're not going to want to wait to release these until there's enough of an installed user base on these next generation or current generation consoles. So there's going to be a little bit of a push and pull when it comes to when do we release these? We have to make our X quarter sales goals or, or whatever, but there's, it just doesn't make financial sense to get these things out unless people actually have the consoles to play them on. Agreed. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about the state of video games and kind of uh, the past, present, and future, I guess, of, of how games operate and how they run and what it's like to be a collector and a, and a lover of video games in this kind of community. Stick around. All right, welcome back. So now, uh, I said we were going to talk about the state of video games and kind of the way things were and the way things are and the way things are, are seeming to, to uh, trend as far as video game collecting goes. And now I want to preface that and couch that in the fact that uh, it's no uh, small secret that uh, Jim and I both are very much uh, retro game fanatics. So That we are. What I mean by retro games is I mean like... Anything previous generation can be considered a retro game. So even going back so far, I wouldn't necessarily say Xbox 360. Uh, maybe 360 and PlayStation 3 might be where you start off in that for now uh, as, as you advance farther down the road. But when, when you think retro games, you mostly think of things like uh, Nintendo or Sega or... Uh, Atari or anything cartridge based or coin operated, right? And and that's kind of where I am. Um, we've talked about my love of the uh, the twelve inch arcade replicas, the the replicades from uh, New Wave Toys, and and of course, if anyone could see Jim at this point, you'd see that he's got a big arcade system right behind him, uh, amongst uh, a lot of others. But uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be arcade based. I mean, we're talking like old NES cartridges or Super Nintendo or. Or Genesis or Master System or whatever uh, other systems you're thinking of. Now, uh, I myself, I have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of, if we're talking just video consoles, video game consoles that connect to your TV, probably around 30, 35 consoles, uh, Ataris and Commodores and and uh, and the like, and, and, and Colecos and Intellivisions. And, I mean, I've got... A lot. If it's if it's commonly available, I've pretty much got it. Um, and then if you add handheld systems into that, uh, that spikes the number up closer to eighty. 
uh, systems that I own. So when I whereas say, I've kind yeah. of uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was gonna say. So when I say that I uh, uh, collect these systems, it's not just I like video games. It's the actual uh, history of video gaming that I collect. So. And I've moved around a lot, so I actually had the consoles at one point. I had most of them. I've, I've have had a Genesis. I had. I, I think it's an unwritten rule that every kid has every toy their dad ever wanted. And my dad was really into Pac-Man when I was a kid. He really liked the. Uh, is the last video game video game he really liked. He played some video games when he was older. He played The Sims and, and he played some uh, Sim City and whatnot, some of the old Maxis stuff. But that's about as far as it went. But as a kid, he really loved Pac-Man and he used to play Pac-Man every chance he got. So when the Atari Twenty Six Hundred came out with Pac-Man, even though it was the shittiest port ever, <laughs> he still worst. loved that. Yeah. It was awful. It was the worst, but he still loved it. So we had the Twenty Six Hundred. So I grew up with uh, with video games. And actually, prior to the Twenty Six Hundred, I remember we actually had. I, I, some no-name console that was a, a basically a Pong console that had the, the fader slider-style controllers right on the console. You had to sit crisscross applesauce on the floor and move those things up and down, working the paddles. And so I grew up with video games, and we had a, a Atari, and then once I got to uh, you know grade school, junior high, uh, that was like the, the era of the, the original Nintendo Entertainment System, and then I had the Genesis, and I had a, a, a Saturn. So I've had a lot of these consoles, but right oh, yeah. now... I only go back. I only go so far back with with my current consoles as the PS One. I don't have anything cartridge based anymore. I had a Nintendo sixty four. I had an Atari. I had a Super Nintendo. But whereas um, you're a lot more old school, a lot more hardcore about collecting the actual consoles and the games that go into or onto them, uh, I, I sort of like get most of my kicks and retro games through emulation now, just because I don't have the space or the or the spare cash really to uh, to start buying up older systems and hunting down the. The, the software for me. And I'm kind of in the same vein. I was sitting here thinking while you were talking about that, I was remembering that uh, uh, my dad used to have the Commodore 64. And and I used to love getting on the Commodore 64, playing Zaxxon and Jungle Hunt and... Oh, hell yeah. Pitfall. And then I distinctly remember there was a while where I was trying to hack into his copy of Leisure Suit Larry because I was a uh, <laughs> 12-year-old, 13-year-old, trying to figure out how to play these games i shouldn't be playing <laughs> yeah pre-internet you do whatever you can to see whatever boobies you need to pixelated tits here and there but uh but yeah so i mean I, i'm more of the hardware fan and, and i collect the games too but i have been uh an emulation fan since since way back as well and, and in fact one of my favorite systems for emulation happens to be uh the psp go uh, now for those of you oh, who yeah. don't know the psp came in a couple of different flavors before it became the Vita, and one of the one of the things that they did was they made it all digital. They took away the the, the disc slot on it to make it all digital. You had to buy the games from the uh, from the PlayStation Store. But what that made them be able to do is because it had such a wide internet availability to it, is uh, people were easily able to hack it and throw emulators in there. And so mine has an emulator for Atari and for Intellivision. It's got Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Sega, Game Boy Advance, Game Boy... I mean, it's got a dozen emulators on it that I can go back and... It literally fits into the into the back pocket of my, on my jeans or the vest pocket when I wear my vest. And I'm able to go out and about on my business. But I think that kind of... I mean, that brings to mind something that I wanted to talk about now. Uh, the way video games are right now... Uh, is a lot different from the way we had things back in the day. Now, back in the day, of course, I mean, we were talking about it, the cartridge-based systems with Nintendo and the Atari and and Sega and the like. Uh, you get, say, say I went out and I bought 
Mortal Kombat. I pop it into the Genesis. For good or for bad or for ill, Mortal Kombat is what's on that cartridge. There's no updating it. There's no yep. uh, patching. There's no... <laughs> There's, there's nothing. What you get is what you get. And and I want to say that, the, yes, games have improved graphic-wise. Games have improved content-wise. Yes, sometimes adding downloadable content to a video game is is uh, preferable and, and, and good and, and easily a moneymaker for the companies themselves. But the fact of the matter is, is it also complicates things far too often. Uh, I kind of miss... It's a double-edged sword in a big way. I miss the simplicity of just being able to you know, pop in a Nintendo cartridge and play what's on it. You know what I mean? You, you used to be able to buy a game and you knew that it was complete. And aside from the occasional famous glitch that maybe came up after release that people kind of found by accident, uh, developers had to make sure that a game was complete before they put it on a cartridge, burned it to a chip, and, and shipped it out to retail. You couldn't, you know, after, after you sent something out, you couldn't... There was no Nintendo Entertainment System day one patch where you could fix shit you slept on before you put it out. You had to make sure your game was ready, and it was complete, and it was set to ship before you ever put it into a box. Otherwise, you'd have a legendary piece of, uh, of garbageware on your hands that, that nobody would buy because it was, it was broken, and, and that was just the way it went. And that, that happened very, very rarely. Uh, but now, as soon as you installed i think it's kind of after the after the memory card era the second that you started putting hard drives into consoles i think the if i'm i'm, I'm probably mistaken about this and if i am please set me right but i think the original xbox was the first game console to have a hard drive even um a, a console that came out just before that something like uh the 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 sega dreamcast you still had memory cards you had those those um uh, the, I forget what they were called now, and I'm ashamed that I do the because VMU. I still have a Dreamcast. Yeah, the VMU, the thing that you would plug into the the the, the, the handheld uh, um, controller to be able to save your games. You could take them with you and do little Tamagotchi-style games on those. Even as recently as 1999, which, you know, again, maybe a lot of them, uh, folks that might, well, that's not very recent at all, but for me, it's fucking recent, so shut up. Um, <laughs> even as recently as 99, which is 22 years ago, um, you've got games that, that still needed to ship complete on disc, and you couldn't issue patches or DLC or any kind of fixes or anything after that. So it's only been in the last roughly 20 years since video game consoles have been shipping with onboard storage that developers have been saying, oh, so wait a minute, we can actually go ahead and, and, and send things out after we release the game. We can send... I mean, the, the good thing about it is we can send DLC, we can send um, th uh, game enhancements, we can fix, but the, uh, fix things that are wrong. But what it does wind up... Uh, resulting in is that now, and I think this has been kind of uh, the last round of games that came out for the Xbox One and PS4, but certainly pretty much every game that's coming out on the current generation consoles, you can't pop in the game and play it right away. Right. You have to pop in the game. The game has to install on the hard drive, which takes up valuable space on your hard drive um, in order to make the, the, uh, the solid state memory work and have the games load as quickly as they do. Because again, going back to um, it was something I forgot to mention about Assassin's Creed Valhalla is not only did the gameplay uh, much choppier and have shittier graphics, but the load times were also at least 10 or 12 times what they are in the solid state memory of the Series X. Uh, I could get up and go make a sandwich and, and get a, a bottle of beer and then come back and the game would still be chewing on itself. Um, but the double-edged sword of that is you can get DLC, you can get game enhancements, but game developers can also get kind of lazy and kind of sloppy. And if they find any bugs after they ship to retail, they can just issue those day one patches. And I can't remember the last time that I installed the game on any console that didn't need an update immediately out of the box. Right, and and like as far as, at least with uh, 
CD Projekt Red when I, I installed uh, uh, Cyberpunk recently. Uh, it, it finally installed. It took forever and a goddamn day to install. And then by the time it finished installing, there was an update for it almost immediately. Yep. And it took another day yep. and a half to install. So it's like really hard to just jump into the game. Whereas you pull a Nintendo cartridge out, yeah, you, you blow on the cartridge, yeah. you throw it in the in the system, and away you go. You want to play a game after work? You got to start installing it before you start. Yeah. Now. If you want to play it any time that weekend, yeah. But I mean, and that's, and I think maybe that's part of the draw towards retro video gaming. Yes, I know that we're all graphics junkies. We like having games that look fantastic, run like a cinematic movie, and have an epic and engaging story. But I don't know. Sometimes there's something about just slapping a game in and being able to sit down and play for an hour, two hours, not really focused on that. Like, I love sitting down and and, and fucking around with Metroid. Metroid has always been one of my go-to games. It's challenging. It's uh, fun. A lot of fun. It's one of those genre-defying titles. I mean, you constantly hear about games now. If there, A lot of games that come out on Game Pass for Xbox uh, One and Series X are kind of considered... um, uh, they call them Metroidvania games because they're those sort of branching map, side-scrolling, pixel art style roguelikes, mm-hmm. and they they refer to those as Metroidvania. And anybody who's either played Castlevania or Metroid, which was fucking everybody back in the day, knows exactly what kind of game you're talking about if you refer to it as that. Right, and 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 there's something like I said, liberating about sitting down and being able to just play through a game and know that it's not going to need an update, know that it's not broken intrinsically, uh, and if it is, we all know about it already. Um, mm-hmm. just being able to like play through Mario Brothers and be done with it in like an hour or two, or like Bubble Bobble. I love to sit down with Bubble Bobble and just yeah see how many levels I can burn through before I get fucking tired of it. And 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 there's something just freeing about that. And and, and I wonder if that's kind of the push towards retro gaming. And the reason retro gaming is having such a heyday right now is because of that nostalgia for the simpler times. Well, there's also the fact that, you know, as much as neither one of us wants to admit it, being Generation Xers, um, we are part of an aging demographic. We're not going to turn into the boomers. We're just not. And we certainly don't have a lot of the concerns coming up that millennials and and Zoomers do. But, you know, there is once you get past a certain point, and I hesitate to say it, but it is mid-40s where you and I are both kind of swirling that drain. You do start to get that sort of, you know, get off my lawn. Things are better when I was a kid sort of nostalgia going on. And uh, a big part of that is the entertainment we had when we were kids. And you're right, it was simpler, it was more direct. Um, and in a lot of cases, well, there's there's a, a trope that uh, gets thrown around a lot called Nintendo Hard, where you're talking about games like uh, Ghouls and Ghosts uh, or oh, Ghosts and that, Goblins. Fuck that game. Honestly, or like the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where you kind of had a, a pixel's worth of, of margin of error trying to swim through those electric tendrils and that on I don't level. know anybody who's beaten that game. And, of Never course, once. the absolute ultimate example, everybody cites they talk about this shit, fucking Battletoads with that bike speeder <laughs> level. Um, years ago, you couldn't, as a developer, pad the length of your game with two to 300 hours worth of content. And then if people still were champing at the bit for more, you couldn't slap out a piece of DLC and, and add another 10, 12, 20 hours onto a game. So you had to kind of make these games incredibly challenging uh, so that you could charge X amount of dollars for a cartridge and folks that were buying the game could feel like they're kind of getting their money's worth. And... 
despite the fact that these games are fucking impossible in a way that sort of like only the uh, the Dark Souls games now are able to approximate, um, there was a certain amount of pride if you could say, hey, I beat the, the bike speeder level on, on Battletoads, or I was able to get through the second run of Ghouls and Ghosts uh, without losing my armor even once. It kind of gave rise to this, this no-hit uh, and, and speedrun culture that a lot of people are sort of undertaking. I just read an article uh, a couple of days ago and watched a video on it where uh, NES Tetris, the original NES Tetris, it came around around the same time as, as the Game Boy Tetris. So those two are kind of considered the definitive versions of the game, even though there's been a Tetris in every console ever since. But the NES Tetris is still to this day the one that the tournaments use. And you have to use an actual original NES controller and uh, an unaltered emulation or an actual original NES with a cartridge on it, and that's what the actual, uh, that's what they adjudicate on. That is the, consider the definitive version. And there's been two different types of control schemes people have used to play this game. One which is called DAS, and they, uh, the DAS players, they use the D-pad, and they hold down the D-pad to move the pieces, because after about a sixteenth of a second, the game knows you don't want to move it just one tick to the left or right, and it actually moves it several ticks at the same time if you hold down the controller. But you sort of get a, a delay, because there is that very slight tick, 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 there's that, that first tick before it moves. So when you get into the very higher levels where the, the, the rise is three quarters on the screen and the speed of the, 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 the pieces are dropping faster than gravity and that sort of falls down. However, the DAS players for the longest time did dominate because it's a very smooth control scheme until the hyper tappers came along and these are the folks that uh, they are able to like an induce a muscle spasm in their thumb or their finger or whichever digit they're using to control the D-pad to get the piece to move precisely as many clicks as they want uh, and they can bypass that initial very slight delay between when the game knows you don't want to move it one click and you actually want to move it several clicks. So the hyper tappers, and it's apparently an extremely difficult technique to master. Um, I actually have been a drummer for a long time, so I can do press rolls and I can induce a muscle spasm in my forearm that can get my, my fingers to move really quickly. So I might have been able to do this if I, if I played Tetris competitively. But the DAS players kind of fell out of favor in favor of the hyper tappers being able to, to play these games more effectively and move the pieces around faster. Well, just in the last couple of months, a third technique has emerged uh, in the competitive Tetris community, and they're calling it rolling. And what this is, is because the people who adjudicate the, uh, the Tetris uh, tournaments, they say, you can use any control scheme that makes you feel comfortable. You can play it behind your head like Jimmy fucking Hendrix if you want to, as long as you use an original controller. Whatever is permissible within the confines of using that original Nintendo Entertainment System controller, if you can do it with your body, it's legitimate. So people were trying all kinds of different techniques, tapping things and rolling things. So the rolling thing differs from hypertap because hypertap requires a muscle spasm in your forearm that most, most people can't pull off. The rolling thing, you hold down a certain direction on the D-pad and then you drum your fingers in rapid succession. You roll them on the bottom of the controller to be able to get the piece to move. And apparently this is very difficult because achieving the precise pressure where you're holding down the D-pad but not quite engaging the, the, the momentary switch within the controller to get that piece to move requires an incredibly precise amount of pressure. And of course, these old NES controllers are kind of crude things if you want to really break it down. The games require precision control, but the controllers themselves were kind of primitive by today's standards. So to hold the, the D-pad down just far enough so that you're just about engaging that switch and then drumming your fingers like you're drumming them on a desk, 
on the bottom of the controller to engage that momentary switch on and off. Uh, these rolling people that are, are apparently blowing records away. So it just goes to show you, there's there's something to be said for retro games in terms of simplicity, in terms of directness, in terms of being able to like sit down and play a game in, uh, through in a single sit down. But even now, even in 2021, 25 years later, 35 years later, in some cases, they're finding new and interesting ways to to engage with these games in ways that completely changes them in fundamental ways. Absolutely, and and I think that that's like I said, kind of the draw of these systems is that you get to uh, continue enjoying them. There's no taking away from the enjoyment, uh, with the exception of like Duck Hunt and things like that, the light zapper games that don't work on yep. today's modern TVs. But other than that, I mean, there's no real drawback from continuing to fall back into these gaming patterns and and if systems like the nes classic snes classic and the playstation classic and things like that have ever taught us anything it's the fact that this desire and this willingness to play these games is still out there and it's just a matter of uh being in a format that people can access because not everybody's lucky enough like you or i to have the consoles themselves to play them on um and even I don't. I mean, most of my stuff's unplugged and in, in in storage right now because I just don't have the room for yeah. it. Well, I mean, in, in light of that, in terms of emulation, I just I have on order. It's coming from overseas, so it's going to take a little time. But I ordered it from Amazon. I ordered what they. What, you've probably seen these things on YouTube, and, and actually, Justin, I, I hate to keep bringing him up, but I really don't because he's a great guy and he's a Hi, friend of the podcast and listens. My um, friend Justin Fermanick, he. Um, turned me on to this thing that he ordered that he said is great. He ordered the Anbernic RG351P. And if you're not familiar with that, I've if you're listening, this is one of those, yeah, it's, it's, it's an emulation, it's a handheld emulation console that roughly follows the form factor of like maybe the, the, the original Game Boy Advance. Not the, the, the clamshell one, but the actual, uh, um, the one that sort of sits like you would sit with a Switch now, where it's got the controllers on either side of the screen. And this thing... I think it emulates 40 or 50 different consoles. If, if, it's a, if it's a console that came out prior to, like, the disc era, although it is pretty good, apparently, at emulating things like the Nintendo 64 and the, and the PlayStation 1, but anything after that is a little too advanced. But it's a, a Linux-based system, and apparently this thing plays ROMs, so if you know where to find your ROMs, you can just load them up on an SD card and plug them right into this console, and it will emulate... All of these old, all these old actual pieces of hardware, that's and awesome. so I'm looking forward to that and seeing what that, uh, what, what what that's capable of. But uh, yeah, Justin said it's been able to handle anything prior to like PS1 uh, N64 era that he's he's dumped on it and thrown at it. So um, yeah, I'm, that that's, that should be coming within the next couple of weeks, and and that should be fun to play with because apparently, like most systems, what it breaks down to is how well does it run the games and how good are the controls? Can you actually right. operate the games using the controls, using the muscle memory that you developed when you were in your teens? And evidently, this thing holds up to the task, and Justin's a big fan of it, so I dropped a, a Benjamin on mine, and it should be rolling in within a couple of weeks. These are absolutely still my favorite. You see these here? Oh, yeah. My game, game Boy Micro, and the reason I like them is they've got amazing battery life. Like, I charged these a year ago. Now, probably about eight months ago I charged them because I intended to play them and I just didn't. But I'll bet you ten bucks it turns on. All right. Hey, my my ten spot is safe. It turns on, and, and they're just they're solid, they're dependable. they got a very small screen, So, but, but I'll use them because I could tuck them into a pocket and just take them with me, but... Yeah, uh, and, I, and I happen to have two of them. That's my favorite. But uh, yeah, I love emulating. I love using my uh, the only systems that really don't 
emulate well uh, are the Nintendo 64, by and large. They, the games kind of run choppy. And then yeah. the uh, Nintendo GameCube don't emulate very well. And that's because the GameCube was such a high-quality system and the games were so high-caliber, so... Yeah, anything prior to, like, maybe early 90s will run just fine. But, like, you know, disc era on forward, which, of course, even though it wasn't a disc-based system, the N64 came out around that same time, and so that sort of qualifies. But anything from, like, like 93, 94 forward, you kind of have to actually have uh, either a high-end gaming PC or the actual hardware. But this thing is apparently just top-notch at emulating anything. Uh, Sega Genesis, uh, you know... NES, Super Nintendo, even obscure shit like the Jaguar and the Wonderswan. This thing, will, you can just dump the ROMs right on it, Neo Geo stuff, and it'll just play like a dream. That's awesome. Let's take Turbo a Graphics break. 16. Oh, yeah, don't forget the Turbo Graphics. Gotta Can't play do bon- that. Gotta play Bonk's Adventures. Love it. Let's take a quick break. We come back, we're gonna talk about the state of video games as they are now and kind of see what the future's going towards. Uh, stick around. Alright, welcome back. So, we talked about retro gaming, and of course, me and Jim, as I said before, we have kind of a soft spot for it. Uh, it's kind of our, our, our peanut butter jelly. Um, but that's not to say that we don't enjoy modern games, because we do. I know Definitely. I enjoy games like the Assassin's Creed games are fantastic. Uh, I'm a big fan of those. The Insomniac Spider-Man games are, hands down, one of my favorites I've played in a lot of years. I'm actually holding off finishing the Miles Morales game on PS5 because I don't want it to be over yet. Well, they've already announced uh, Spider-Man 2, and they're talking about the scope and severity of this new one that they're making, and it's just supposed to be mind-blowingly huge. That's and... a day one purchase. There are certain developers and certain oh, yeah. series that are just so good that you, I, don't need to, I don't need to hear any reviews, I don't need to see any demos or watch any trailers. I'm just going to pick those things up, maybe even on pre-order, which, again, is another problem unto itself, but whatever, but yeah. <laughs> It's it's like that, and it's like uh, the Elder Scrolls, single-player Elder Scrolls games mm-hmm. I'm down for. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, because I killed so much time playing, uh, and it's been greatly documented on this podcast alone how many bloody times I've purchased uh, copies of Skyrim. It's ridiculous. Well, it's but, available on everything from your refrigerator to your fucking calculator now, so, you know. It's true. It's true. I think I saw someone uh, created like a... a uh, Texas Instruments cal- graphing calculator version of uh, Skyrim. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. It was pretty fantastic. They've done It'll some run anything. shit. But uh, uh, I know that as far as current generation gaming goes, a lot of my most recent purchases have stemmed towards uh, virtual reality. And now I know when I say virtual reality... Oh, that's right. You're rocking the headset. Right. People talk a lot about like Oculus and, and, and uh, the, the Vive and all these things and Unfortunately, the only one that I can rock at this point is the PlayStation VR. That's just the infrastructure that I bought into. That's just where I sit with it. And so uh, that's where a lot of my uh, purchasing goes into, my, my, my focus goes into. 
Uh, and I don't have a VR headset, but I have played it at my buddy Dave's house, and it's uh, it's amazing. It's pretty impressive. It yeah. is it is a very impressive piece of technology. You think it'd be gimmicky? You think it would be kind of just a uh, thing that you play around with for ten minutes and go, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. But you know, it's more of a tech demo than an actual viable piece of entertainment hardware. No, that thing is fucking amazing. I got my mom playing that when she came to visit. I put her in uh, the headset and threw Arkham uh, the Arkham VR on, the Batman yeah. Arkham VR. And now you want to talk about a tech demo. That's only about a half hour long. I was very sad that it wasn't more of a game. but Nonetheless. Uh, I put her on the roof of the Gotham City Police Department. And I'm like, all right, now put the helmet on and just look around. And she's looking around and like stumbling because she's like feels like she's going to fall off the edge of the building. And it's just so... Now, if I had a PlayStation VR headset, I would play Beat Saber probably six, I, seven hours a day. I do. It's good My exercise. drummer ass loves that fucking game. There's another one that I've been playing. It's called Pistol Whip. And Pistol Whip is basically if you combined uh, Beat Saber with John Wick. And what oh. it is is you, you, use <laughs> the move, you use the move controllers as pistols. You can do one-handed, two-handed, uh, or right or left hand. You can do whatever you want to do. But it's a shooting in rhythm game. So the, the level moves forward, and it's very sparse graphics. I mean, it's, it's not supposed to be like highfalutin graphics. Think super hot, but like... I love super uh, hot. I do too, and that VR version is pretty badass too. But um, so the the song is playing in the background, and the villains pop up on the screen in a rhythm, and the jo- you get rated on first of all how how far you can make it if you can make it through the level, but you also get rated on uh, whether you shot in time and in sync with the music. So <laughs> it's really like a they talk about uh, the Matrix and 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 John Wick being things called bull, a gun ballet. Where it's just this choreographed... Yeah, gun kata. Yeah, and that's exactly what this is. And it's fantastic. I love it. Um, also, I play a game. Uh, it's kind of a... What do you want to call it? It's a, like an escape room simulator, basically. It's called I Expect You oh, to nice. Die. And it's a James Bond-type thing where you're in these James Bond-esque <laughs> situations. Yeah, hey, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Right, and you're supposed to figure out how to get out of this room before something kills you. Without triggering a trap or, you know, blowing up randomly and, and shit like that. It's it's so much fun. I think probably this particular generation of VR passed me by, but I'm definitely going to... I just read an article not long ago about how Sony has said they're developing a new uh, version of the VR headset that will work with the, the PS5, and they're going to kind of develop a whole bunch of uh, games that work with that. Um, and, and some cough, other things cough. like Make that. it cordless, please. Yeah, for, for, for real. I mean, it, it kind of sucks you out of the immersion if you're having to be very conscious of that cord when you're moving around your virtual space. That's true. But uh, they're also talking about doing things like just creating not necessarily games, but more like exploratory environments. Since, as you mentioned, like the Assassin's Creed series, uh, the last few have been so historically accurate from Origins on forward that they're sort of coming out with these uh, educational modes in those games where you can kind of suck all the conflict and gameplay and fighting out of it and just wander around like you're a, a historical tourist and do things like visit the Library of Alexandria if you're playing Odyssey, or you could visit the Pyramids and the Sphinx if you're playing Origins. And, and they're going to be, uh, the next update for Valhalla, I think, is also going to be one for for uh, Viking-era England. So one, the VR folks yeah. are talking about, uh, coming coming out with just experiences that aren't necessarily games, but things where you can, like, you could hang out in the, in the, um, the rainforest and take a nice waterfall shower. You can visit, you know, the Amazon basin. You can go to these these different places around the world. If you can't get to Vatican Square, you can't get to uh, the the Champ Elysee in, in France. You can't get to Trafalgar Square. You can go and sort of stand there and look around and, and sort of kind of have that experience. 
And yeah, like they call them immersive experiences. And and in fact, uh, video game technology is such that they put so much work and so much effort into making Assassin's Creed, for instance, so yes, uh, uh, immersive. Even as far back as the Ezio games, they were going to Italy to take pictures of the existing Renaissance structures to be right. able to and recreate is, them accurately in game. And and what they've done is when they had fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral, and the yeah. Notre Dame Cathedral was destroyed, devastated. They're mm-hmm. able to go back and look at these games, and these games are designed so well and, and yeah. so historically accurate that they're able to take things like this and use them as a reference for reconstruction. And they've already talked about how they're doing that with uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, is how they're rebuilding it using uh, these, yeah, Assassin's Creed Unity as a base. How amazing is that? Like, we shit, we shit on modern video games a lot, and, and, and in fact, we should. Uh, we both share... Uh, a friend in uh, Jim Steph Sterling. Uh, Steph, how you doing? Yep. Uh, one of the most notorious uh, video games critics out there. Um, and because they punch the faces that need punching for a long, long time on the Jimquisition, and kind of even going back to when uh, when they used to work for the Escapist uh, doing their show. Um, Steph is very, very critical of things about the about games and the gaming industry that need to be criticized. Things, things that people like gloss boxes, over, yeah. Things like developer greed. I mean, if you're just a regular everyday video game consumer and you buy your games, you play your games, you may not necessarily know how the sausage is made and you might not have a, a, that much of an insight onto how dirty the industry can be. But between, you know, mandatory overtime hours with Crunch, uh, Riot Games not long ago had a massive sexism scandal. And uh, Don't Steph get me started really great, about fucking... Uh, uh, Ubisoft, Jesus. Oh, God. You know, as much as I love Ubisoft, as much as I play the Watchdog series, as much as I, I, I play even the uh, the Ghost Recon series, and I didn't hate Ghost Recon Breakpoint, um, you know, and, and also, of course, the Assassin's Creed games are some of my favorites. Ubisoft, uh, their, one of their, their directors just had to quit because of a toxic work environment, and I believe it was sexual harassment. But um, oh, Steph is great about blowing the lid off of all that shit and has been for a very, very long time. So um, highly recommend checking out Jim Steph Sterling's YouTube channel and their show, The, Inquis- the Jimquisition, if you want to get uh, an insight onto how dirty the game's production process and the gaming industry can be. If you'd rather not know, if you'd rather kind of be like <laughs> the person that goes, yes, I know, I eat meat, I don't want to watch the documentaries about factory farms, fair fucking enough. I mean, I guess it's a privileged position to take and you're more than welcome to take it, but... If, like Kevin and I, you're very into the, the, the culture and the process and the performance and the playing of the video games, you, you kind of do owe it to yourself a little bit to at least understand the working conditions and the production schedules and some of the really nasty, dirty, nitty-gritty shit that goes into it. And their show is great for checking that out. Right, and it's just like you said. It's, it's learning how the sausage is made. And, and just yep. like sausage, there's a lot of lips and assholes, lip service and assholes involved with uh, <laughs> making video games. But uh, A fine analogy. But the thing that bothers me the most is, is, is like we're talking about, uh, Steph always talks about uh, uh, loot boxes. They were one of the first ones to talk about mm-hmm. uh, loot boxes in uh, the predatory gaming market right now, the way it is. And uh, it's something that is, is endemic of the system right now. It's gambling. It's legalized it gambling. Is. 
and it's one of the some cases it isn't legal. Other countries have some other countries in Europe, especially because games are at least if not aimed at anymore, but at least ostensibly available to children, and it's not legal for kids to gamble. There's warnings that have to be on the games. They've had to take these mechanics out of the games in some cases because the gambling was found to be gambling legally, and it's it's not something that you can you can have people of certain ages do in these countries. Right, and and I think that's kind of what takes a lot of the luster out of these video games. I mean, like you said, I enjoy the Assassin's Creed video games. I always have very much. Um, I don't really play multiplayer games like Call of Duty or uh, no. I'll For- play the single player Fortnite campaigns, but I won't or play, PUBG I don't go online with or them. anything. I'll yeah. play some co-op online. Like I remember doing some some. Uh, some raiding with some friends in uh, some of the earlier Borderlands games, but I don't I don't go online and actually play competitive games because like I'm in my mid forties now and I don't have time because I work for a living to be able to uh, get good and to be able to spend hours and hours learning how to spawn camp and learning where all the uh, everything is that you can the angles you can cheat at. So I'm not some like eleven year old kid who can you know <laughs> snipe your ass from three football fields away and then teabag your corpse and like. Uh, and like a PUBG or a or Fortnite or something. I don't play those games. I, I usually go for the single-player stuff. But, but yeah, I totally understand your philosophy on that. Man, we totally sound like old man screaming at the sky. Uh, you know, so I much don't that, like the like, way you play your games, young people. Hey, you know what? It's like that meme said. You know, if, if kids are complaining about video games now, then uh, I don't really have a whole lot of patience for that. Because, I mean, you know, do not cite the deep magic to me for I was there when it was written. You know what I mean? <laughs> no shit, Gandalf. I was there. But, uh, I mean, and, and, and that's a lot of things. It's like when you find out how the sausage is made, it really kind of takes a lot of the luster off of these video games. So the natural inclination, as you said, is to kind of just kind of put your head down and be like, la, 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 I know, la, 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 la. I just want to enjoy my video games. You do have to have some, some cognitive and, dissonance about it, really. Uh, but at the same time, if you're not aware of these predatory practices happening in the video games right now, uh, it almost smacks of purposeful ignorance. I yeah. Mean, and it almost is. You, you can't really claim you don't know about it. You, you, can, you can willfully opt out of learning too much about it if you want to preserve your cognitive dissonance about it. But, yeah, you're really, if you play video games at all, you're at least aware of some of the shit that goes on at Blizzard, some of the shit that goes on at Riot. You're aware that uh, Valve can't count to three, as it were. So, you know, there's some of these behind-the-scenes things that if you play video games at all, you can't really avoid them. But it really is kind of up to you to find out how much of a rabbit hole you want to delve into to uh, to really get a sense of, of some of the shit that goes on behind the scenes of your favorite developers. And, and you know, it really it, it can, to a certain extent, ruin your enjoyment of the games. But I don't know. It, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough place to be where you kind of have to decide where your, your personal levels of tolerance are. Am I going to boycott developer X because they pulled action Y on employee Z? It's, it's a tough thing to, to parse a lot of the time, but, but um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a really difficult time. It's, it's a great time to be a video game fan, but it's also kind of problematic in some ways if we're being completely honest. Well, it's the same thing with the entire entertainment industry as a whole. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're, we're getting to see a bit more behind the curtain uh, when we see things like... Uh, 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 Harvey Weinstein or things like Joss Whedon, uh, mm-hmm. the people that we yeah. maybe at one point had respected, but now their antics can't go on behind closed doors anymore because those closed doors are being slammed wide open. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same thing with these game developers. They're not able to get away with the shit that they used to get away with because of social media, this, that, and the other thing. We're more privy to their uh, underhanded dealings and their shitty practices and it's difficult but not impossible to be anonymous on the internet. So, you know, the NDAs are a lot less uh, a lot less uh, ironclad now. And so people want to leak things <laughs> if they want to talk about things. Yeah, yeah enforceable. If you want to, you know, let it slip that, hey, maybe they, they pulled this shady shit when they thought nobody was looking. It's more difficult to get away with that. So in some ways that's good, I think. 
um, because people there's not really any place for these guys to hide if they want to get up to some shady shit. But in, in some cases, if you're a video game fan, it really does it, it does kind of pull focus a little bit away from what the focus should be on, and that's making good games, playing good games, producing good games, and talking about good games. Right, and I mean, and this doesn't the predatory practices don't even extend just to to console games anymore. It's also in things like mobile games now. If you're anything yeah. like me, you have a, a cell phone in your pocket, a little tiny computer, and uh, I kill a lot of time playing video games on my phone, and it's usually one or two games. I don't really go too deep on it a whole lot, but uh, these games are just guaranteed money factories too, uh, and it's for the same reason. It's either cosmetic, uh, ideally, or it's uh, gameplay. It's something that'll help yep. you get good quicker without having to spend the time to actually do the game. And, uh, like, and going back to what you said about Ubisoft earlier, um, the, uh, the Assassin's Creed games have been kind of guilty of this in the last couple of iterations since Origins. Well, I guess what, what they're sort of calling out, because they've had three games in a row that sort of follow very open world but more RPG elements, uh, Origins, Odyssey, and now Valhalla, I'll have a lot of that in there. But starting with Origins and going forward... Uh, Ubisoft has put into their their store that you can access from within the game. It's very easy to do it. Uh, what they call time savers and uh, uh, like construction packs, because like, there's crafting elements. There's there's collectathon elements in these games where you can collect certain things and trade them for other things within game that you can use or create things from those materials to use in game. <clears throat> so Ubisoft has created what they call time saver purchases that you can spend real money to get things like. Uh, you can double your your potential experience points, so you could advance in the game faster. You can spend real money to get things like in-game gold and construction materials, so you can build things and trade for things faster. You could spend real money to get in-game weapons to give yourself an edge very early on in the game to advance further, faster, so you don't have to wait. And the fact that they call these time savers—it's the the impl- not even the implication, but the overt um, indication—is that you're that, wasting well, your time wanna, playing a video yeah, game. Yeah, do you want? Do you want to see a time saver? What's the opposite of a time saver? A time waster. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. If you want to play this game the old-fashioned way and grind up levels and have to constantly run up against things that are slightly stronger than you and that are going to impede your gameplay, and let's be real, let's call it, you know, uh, let's call it what it is, that, that are going to be a lot less fun if you want to just be slightly ahead of all your enemies or slightly behind all of them, you can actually pay money to get slightly better. You don't have to worry about grinding up. And... I'm I'm very guilty of this. Every time a new Assassin's Creed game comes out, I not only buy like a deluxe edition for 70 or 80 bucks that maybe comes with uh, the, the, the season pass so I can get DLC and maybe a, a starter pack of stuff that'll give you a slight edge at the beginning of the game and maybe throughout the game. I also, the first thing I do is I go to the store because I'm a grown-up and I don't give a shit and I maybe don't have all the time to necessarily grind up. I do buy the experience booster and I do buy the the maps so that I don't have to stumble on things. I buy the maps that point out all the collectibles that are things you can either collect to trade for other things to make the game easier or more fun or whatever it is. But um, I don't necessarily buy gear, but I do buy uh, maps and starter packs and experience boosters and all that kind of shit because um, I do want to... If I'm going to set aside the time to sit down and play a game, um, I, I kind of want, I, I want to enjoy my game. I don't play the, uh, the Souls games... Uh, at all, and I never have. Not because oh, they're too hard for me. I'm just like I, I, I want. I play a game to to be released from stress. I play a game to escape from like daily life. I play a game so that I can feel like I'm a powerful creature and that I'm bouncing around in, a, in an area of the world or a fantasy realm that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to access with having a nine to five job. So fuck you. It's my game. I paid for it. I'll play it the way I want. 
And so I do, I buy those things. And I, I guess that makes me part of the problem because if people <laughs> didn't buy them, they wouldn't sell them. And if they didn't sell them, people would have nothing to bitch about. So I don't, I don't gamble. I don't roll the dice on loot boxes. I don't really play a whole lot of games that even have loot boxes, but I am guilty of immediately popping into the store and buying those buffs right at the beginning of the game so that I can make my time with the game more enjoyable because that's what I'm looking for out of the game. Maybe I'm the one doing it wrong. Who knows? No, that's, that's <laughs> the nice thing about it though. You play them your way. I play them my way. They're both equally valid. And I also, uh, notably, play the game on default difficulty settings. I don't make it so easy that I can just breeze through with one hand tied on my back. But I also don't bump it up to the point where i got to redo sections five and six times just to advance in the game. Because I play a game, I want to progress in the game. I want to have fun with it. Right. So that's the way I choose to play it. And that's my option. And you choose your option, I choose mine. They're both available. And that usually is the defense that companies like Ubisoft will put up there. Hey, we make them available. We don't make them mandatory. If you want to break the game, quote-unquote, make it easier for yourself, then you have the option of doing that. But you don't have to. It's just there. Which Back in the is, day, you needed a game genie for that. Yeah, it's kind of a bullshit argument. It is, because it's the same argument they've used on mobile games for years. Well, you can, you know, wait while the 24-hour countdown marker counts down, so you can perform in-game action X or whatever. Or you could just pay us a buck and do it now. Um, they're trading on the fact that most people are impatient and have a buck's worth of disposable income, which most of us are. We're, we're adults, we got busy lives. These are the demographics these games are aimed at, so they know that, you know, you can wait a day or you can pay a buck. What's your time worth? What's your, you know, what are you going to do with it? And they know that a lot of us are going to pay for it. And uh, maybe, again, like I said, that makes they it count kind of a problem. They count on it, yeah. But it's the way I choose to play the game, and that's my option. You know, it reminded me when you were talking about all that. It reminded me of, uh, do you remember the Nintendo hotline back in the day? I sure do. Have you seen, like, videos of these people? They're just sitting in cubicles. They got, like, two Nintendos in front of them and then these binders. And so people will call up and say, hey, I'm having trouble getting past World 3-1 in Super Mario. And so they'll dial up World 3-1 on Super Mario and they'll walk you through how to get through it. It's like, here's your problem. You're, you got to jump over here and go down third pipe from the, you know, and say, what a fun, I always wanted that as a job when I was a kid. Did you? Yeah. Well, kind of, you know, but I mean, now looking back on it, it was kind of, I remember that was pretty controversial for the time because a lot of these games, especially during like the Nintendo Power era, which I had a subscription to Nintendo Power when I was in junior high. Same. Um, but these were aimed at kids and these, they, these were 900 numbers that charge by the minute, kind of like sex lines or psychic hotlines. And, you know, these kids maybe didn't know that because they, they, they had the fast-talking John Machida micro-machine man say the disclaimer at the end of the ad, and it was in tiny, tiny mouse print at the bottom of these print articles that it cost you $1.99 a minute and $0.99 cents a minute after that. Um, so these kids would call up, and, and the, the Nintendo counselors would walk them through it. So, of course, that job got phased out when the Brady Games uh, strategy guides came out, which, uh, in terms of consumer products, went those had a pretty short shelf life because the Internet came along in about mm -hmm. 1990 one or 92 and it sort of achieved widespread distribution and use by like the mid 90s so you maybe had about a 10 year uh window when these uh brady games and then the games that gave you tips and tricks on nintendo hotline were viable before people could just look shit up on the internet because now that's all anybody does i mean i've had certain sections i was just playing little nightmares 2 on the switch the other day and it's a fairly intuitive game it's very much in the vein of like uh outside or limbo kind of that uh side-scrolling small child in, in peril in a large nightmare world sort of genre, which has emerged in the last maybe 10 years. And it's a good one. This is a fairly good example of it. But there was one section of the game that I just tried it about a dozen times. And I'm what the fuck am I supposed to do here? So I just punched it up. I, I Little Nightmares 2. And then I added in my 
Boolean Google search. Here's the section I'm having trouble with. And it came up with a solution for me. And I got a little bit pissed because it was a little counterintuitive. Up to that point, the game had put things in front of you that if you look around your environment, you can figure them out. You can sort of like puzzle together what it is you're supposed to do. But this one was was one of those, again, it's a trope. They call it the guide dang it moments where you kind of have to, there's no way you would be able to pass this section unless you looked it up. So that that's kind of a cheat on the developer's part. But I don't know, maybe whoever was putting the game together, whoever designed that particular puzzle, it made sense to them. But it's just kind of one of those roadblocks that players run into where they go, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do here, so i got to look it up. So that kind of thing still happens. And, you know, like I said, I'm in my mid-40s now. So it doesn't really go away. Just the delivery system for the information changes. Right. And so, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more of a retro gamer. But there are things that I really enjoy about gaming nowadays. Uh, ready, ready access to video games uh, downloaded to my house. Uh, yep. I, th- I thought I would be more resistant about, but like when, when you adapt to things like uh, the virtual reality, um, having a new video game a handful of steps away without having to leave the house is kind of nice. I downloaded the We've new We've gone over before. I, I do still yeah. tend to prefer physical media because developers can yank things off your console anytime they want. But uh, I, I'm not completely immune to downloading things. That, if that I era is going away. Physical it media is. is going away. It is. This is the first console generation where uh, the major developers have offered a digital version and a, and a hard version where you can put discs in one and then you, the other one's all digital. So I have a feeling this much like the games that are coming out that you can really theoretically play on both consoles. I have a feeling that this is probably the last hardware generation, especially because, like we talked about way at the top of this, uh, Xbox in particular is less a console than it is a platform now for their mm-hmm. streaming and, and digital delivery systems. So I have a feeling this may be the last generation where we can actually physically go into a store and buy discs. And maybe that's why, it, you know, I have two or three GameStops close to me. One of them just closed. And the last time I was in there, it was the first time I've been in there in about a year and a half, and the giant racks of used games had all but gone away, and all they had was was hooks on the walls that had cards you could buy that had download codes. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the way of the future, unfortunately. And and for a retro game collector, I think that's kind of a sad state of affairs, but... Really, as we've talked about before, it's not like a huge loss because we're not anymore able to buy just a whole experience. You got to buy. We're going to wind up being like tape heads that go to like VHS conventions and swapping actual physical storage media. Pretty soon, you know, when we get older, if we still want to be able to play these old games, we're going to have to go to specialty stores and and cons and expos and and go places where we can actually buy physical cartridges and discs because they're just they're not going to be releasing those games on that platform anymore. I got to tell you, I don't see a problem with that. I think that's going to be a welcome thing. Um, But, like, okay, so now just to kind of close out the conversation, we're talking about new games and and things that we've tried that are kind of interesting and new. Uh, I wanted to, uh, I'll ask you about uh, a new video game you've gotten into maybe and see what your kind of thought process is. But you're playing the Switch a lot, so I figure you might appreciate this one. I recently got into a game called Super Liminal on the Switch. Hmm. And I have not heard of this. Please educate me. The entire purpose of the game is changing your perspective. And I don't want to get too heavy into it. It's kind of a puzzle-based game. Uh, and I'm really a fan of those type of games, like the old Myst game, Seventh Guest, uh, up into things like Portal, where it's all puzzle-based. And yeah. uh, super liminal, uh, the entire idea behind it is change your perspective. And so that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to tell you it's probably about $10-15 on the, on the Switch store. Go pick it up and let me know what you think about it. I think it's something you'd really get into. Well, but, I kind of uh, like games like that. Games that, that sort of uh, 
that make you look at things a different way, that, that have a gradual learning curve, a, a slight sweep upward, that, that build on things you learned before. There was a game on, uh, I want to say, as far back as the 360, so obviously it's available on any system that's come after that, called uh, Quantum Continuum. Okay. And it was kind of, it was sort of Portal-like, in a way, um, because it was sort of like you have an environment and there's there's a, a an appliance you have that you can use to change your environment that can help you solve the puzzle, but it sort of added... I really should go through and play it again because there was one that changed the texture of things. There was one that changed the weight of them. There was one that was like a time thing. And of course, every area that you gained access to after clearing the previous one added another layer to the the, the kind of options you had to solve a puzzle in any given area, any given room. So by the time you got to the fourth area, um, you, you needed to trade on all four different phases of this particular appliance you had in order to, to clear the levels. And it really made you think around corners and, and through portholes. And it was really... It was it was not a game that could have existed without Portal, but it was kind of it was very different. It was much in that same vein, but it used different mechanics and different Quantum Continuum. Yeah, I might have gotten the title wrong earlier, but Quantum Continuum was the game, and um, it had voice acting that. from uh, from John Delancey, Q from the Star Trek series, plays uh, the the crazy mad scientist uncle of the protagonist character who plays in first person. It was it was a a really really fun game, and it was very much in that puzzle vein, like a lot of games that have that have come after Portal. I'll have to look into that for sure. Well, we want to know what you guys think. Are you guys a retro video gamers? Are you uh, multiplayer online gamers? Are you uh, modern era single player campaign gamers? I mean, what's your what's your specialty? What you, what do you grok to? I mean, tell us what you're into. Hit us up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash feel your fandom. Uh, let us know what uh, what games really move you and what the reasons are behind it. Uh, also, you can find us on our Gmail. You can hit us up at uh, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. Or if you have an idea for a show or want to be a guest on the show or know somebody who would like to be a guest on the show, you can drop us a line at fyftalentbooking at gmail.com, and we'll get that and respond as soon as we can. Absolutely. But we want to know, we want to interact with you. We want to know what your style of video gaming is. Uh, do you like emulation? Are you cartridge-based? Do you like the new wave? Do you like the digital-only are you um, into side-scrolling platformers or open-world sandboxes? Hit us up. Yeah, we want to know. And uh, uh, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you guys for joining us again. Uh, and uh, we forgot to mention that they can send us pie recipes. That's a thing now. I'm yeah, gonna... sure. That's that's definitely a thing that keeps on boomeranging back. We want your pie recipes. We like pie. We do. <clears throat> but uh, uh, from us to you, we want to thank you for listening uh, to another episode. And remember what I always tell you is that uh, everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care. I keep yawning. I can't stop. Jesus Christ, you're boring me. Ugh.